Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 22 of Broken Oars Podcast. I am Dr. Loon Hines, the boss southern one, and I will now introduce my northern monkey psychic, Dr. Aaron Jackson, who will tell you all about our guest today and what you can expect from another sizzling episode of a rowing podcast described by some as being a podcast about rowing. Dr. Jackson. Anyway, hello everyone, I'm Dr. Aaron Jackson and I'm Lewin's Northern Monkey sidekick. And usually when he introduces me like that, I'll introduce a non-secretor that has nothing to do with our guest or topic of conversation for the episode for humorous purposes. So in this episode, we will be talking about the novels of Jilly Cooper and using marmalade as a lubricant in Formula One racing engines. Yeah, my northern monkey sidekick is very funny. Well, as funny as he can be as a man from the north, where they can't afford the sort of sophisticated humour that we possess down south. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, you will have gathered that, yes, it is another episode of Broken Oars Podcast. But on this occasion, I am flying solo in the intro and outro. This is because my good friend and evil oppressor, Lewin, has vanished in the sea of work. And we simply haven't been able to get the time together to do our usual topping and tailing. He's given me permission to introduce this one myself. But after hearing this, if he ever does hear this, I have a feeling that's not something he'll be doing again. And so on that note, and bearing in mind that I will at some point pin Lewin down on the topic of his favourite Jilly Cooper novel and whether or not marmalade can indeed be used as a lubricant in Formula One racing engines, we have, for your delight and delectation today, an interview with Dr. Valerie Kleschner. The rowing historians among you will know that Dr. Kleschner won a silver in the Moscow Olympics in the quadruple skulls and a bronze in the World Championships. Since then, he has gone on to work with elite athletes in elite performance centers around the world. Uh, he has over 25 years of experience working in the field of rowing and elite performance. He's the current owner of BioRow, which looks at the mechanics of rowing from a highly scientific perspective. Before that, he was the National Biomechanics Lead at the English Institute of Sport. He worked as a senior sports scientist at the Australian Institute of Sport. And he regularly publishes his work and insights, and it's available at his BioRow website. We caught up with Dr. Kleshnev shortly after the changes to the GB rowing selection policy had been announced. We noticed that he was probably the only voice who was questioning the impact that these changes would have. And we sat down with him and we had a wide-ranging chat about selection, elite performance, uh, approaches to rowing. And actually, um, if you're going to buy yourself a single, what sort of boat might be the best one for you? It was a fascinating and wide-ranging interview, and um, we hope you enjoy it. First of all, th thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us. It's, a, it's brilliant to have you on. I've been following your work for a very long time with BioRoad. Yeah, thank you. You were the only person I could find who was like publicly prepared to sort of like talk about in any sort of critical terms the uh, the new British Rowing Selection Policy. I'm struggling to understand the way they've set it up. I mean, do, do you feel that you're able to say things that other people in the UK just just aren't? 
Of course, I feel myself quite independent. You know, I have uh, no business with British rowing for more than 10 years. And yeah, to be honest, uh, it's quite strange to me that uh, nobody else, you know, raise their voice, you know, uh, to protect, you know, the values and uh, this, basically the sport of rowing. And, um, I, you know, I have quite, you know, philosophical view on it because you know, I'm growing up in Soviet Union, in a socialist communist country. And um, I know many people sort of, they, they vaccinated, you know, they have some immune response on any violation of the freedom or uh, objectivity or fair rules, who uh, basically, uh, not, not everyone from Soviet Union, but, you know, uh, that's common fact that like in East Germany, the people are more conservative and more, you know, against all that migrate, migration poli politics, you know, than in uh, West Germany, because <laughs> uh, they're more right wing, you know, in politics. To make it clear, my, my vision of um, my role in rowing, you know, I have a silver Olympic medal, right? In 1980, Moscow Olympics in the quad consider it as my debt to rowing. It's not my asset. I'm not uh, expect the people still pay me for that medal and give me more rewards, you know. The most important rowing helped me to build my uh, my character and make myself what, what I am now, you know. So now I have to pay back the debt to rowing as a social concept, as a, you know, uh, to, to maintain it as a, uh, you know, in the state, because without, if, if it would not be rowing, for example, I would be talented. Uh, of course, it was my hard work, you know, my uh, stamina and, um, you know, my qualities, but let's say I would have that talent and not in, in rowing, but in something like, I don't know, uh, other sports like uh, whatever, uh, powerlifting, which is not Olympic sport or uh, whatever. I wouldn't have that recognition and uh, I wouldn't have that infrastructure and that culture of rowing, which gave me a lot. Many thousands and millions of young kids, you know. And to be honest, it, uh, I think it's really shame because uh, I think Great Britain has much more Olympic champions than, than me, much more with many more medals, you know. Uh, if you take only Steve Redgrave, Pinsent, you know, Catherine Granger, you know, they're celebrities because of rowing. Why are they silent? I don't really understand. <laughs> I, I, I'd say that that whole idea is something that me and Aaron are becoming increasingly aware of. People don't really want to, well, literally rock the boat in well, I, I think what you could loosely term the British rowing establishment, which isn't just kind of British rowing as an organization, but kind of the entire culture surrounding rowing. Do you feel, Valerie, that there, there is a somewhat, the re, maybe the reason why there hasn't been um, a backlash against the new selection criteria or people speaking out and challenging it, is because there's there's something of a conservatism with a small c, not in a political sense, but in a kind of a, um, a towing the party line among what Lewin's identified, not just British rowing as a, a sporting organisation, but the whole kind of cultural context and historical context that surrounds it that's quite 
entrenched might might be the wrong word but but is somewhat reactive to change uh, i think uh, british rowing has great history you know it began as a matter of an association you know it was probably the first and uh, basically great britain is origin of modern sport because you know all that clubs movement and uh, how they call it amateur sport and it's still amateur you know because um, six years like uh, when my son youngest son, Victor, uh, grown up to 14. Uh, I helped him, you know, to to, to do rowing in uh, Maidenhead Rowing Club for six years. And we have no support, whatever, uh, uh, not, not from government, not from British rowing, nothing, not, not a penny. Nobody came to us from British rowing and said, look, guys, what are you doing? How, how can we help you? So it was completely self-sufficient, and uh, even it was Maidenhead Rowing Club, they have no salary, you know, no paid position for coaching. So I supported my wife to coach that group, and we finally we made uh, the best uh, junior sculling, boys sculling program. We had uh, one year, I think 2017, we had five single scholars uh, in the top 12 in the first two finals at Selection Regatta, five five singles. <laughs> and the, the second best club, I think it was um, Leander, they had uh, two, only two, and we had five. <laughs> yeah. And then what we found, uh, one of our guys came fourth in a single, and uh, they said, no, they, you are not, uh, go, go away, you know, you are not in the uh, in national team, you are, you, you go you go to Coupe de Jeunesse, but not to the um, Junior Worlds. And next year it, it repeated again. Another guy came fourth, and not not selected. To to me, it's you know it's complete nonsense. You know, again going back to Soviet Union, I would understand it there because like in socialist country, uh, basically all cup, uh, clubs, um, sporting clubs, they're government based. The coaches and even athletes get get salary from government. They basically government employees, so some some government boss can control them and can say, okay, do this or don't do that. But here, you know, completely free country, uh, not, <laughs> completely, you know, not uh, uh, amateur based, you know, self sufficient junior rowing, and then someone sitting on a government salary, basically getting money from our pockets, you know, on taxpayers' money. Uh, they, they, they take that guy, they said, good, uh, you are, I, I, I think you, this, you are good, you are not good, even you are, uh, have shown good results, you know, at selection regatta. And the most, um, uh, not understand, I don't understand, all people not happy with that, you know, all coaches, uh, athletes, rowers, but they're silent. Well, <laughs> I do, they, they are not depend anyway from British rowing. They just should, from my point, they should stand up and say, stop, uh, look, uh, it can't be, can't work in this way. Uh, you, 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 we are your clients. You are our service provider, you know, from British rowing. You so have to help us, but in fact, it, it never happens. I don't understand what was going on. Are you arguing for... If it's going to be completely loosened up to the clubs, let just let the clubs do it. Are you arguing that it needs more government kind of? It, it needs it needs to be one thing or the other, but not this kind of mix mash of the both. 
I think it could be mixed. Uh, there is some other country, if you take, for example, United States, you know, uh, the junior rowing is very similar, you know, uh, elite rowing is different, you know, in uh, in this country, in UK, we, we have government-based um, system of elite rowing, but junior is very similar. And for them, you know, the selection regatta is sort of, um, it's uh, by law, they they eligible to to if they select the selection regatta, there is um, uh, they, they, they even court cases in United States. People uh, bring to the court the, those officials who uh, you know break the, you know the rules of selection regatta. You know they they took some other people and uh, not selected the the winners. I know it's um, people say it's two nations divided by common language <laughs> about United States. <laughs> in uh, Great Britain, but uh, you can look in other countries, Germany or, you know, and um, we are not only a ruling nation, you know, and uh, what what's going on to me, it's, it's not, it's counterproductive. It's, um, it's, it's really not good for development of sport of rowing. Let's talk about what the selection policy was and then let's talk about what it's turned into so that we're, we're kind of looking at what it's moved at. If I'm wrong, Lou, or, or Valerie, then jump in. But my understanding was that we, we have a somewhat centralised system now. We have the base at Caversham. Um, since the advent of lottery funding, there, there are very clear pathways up to the elite level from clubs, from the world-class start programme. There's a series of, of trials and trial events. And if you meet national selection criteria you're then invited to train as part of that is it then a case of once you are in the squad coaches then decide which boats you go into and and then you you kind of move towards world cup events world championships and olympics that's that's my understanding of the current the coaches have the final say about who goes where and who does what to to my knowledge and you know i've spent uh, quite a few years i've spent seven years in Australian Institute of Sport and five years in English Institute of Sport. And we have uh, endless meetings, you know, and with all that um, pictures with athlete center, it's sporting system where the athlete in the center, then the coach and then support staff, like a bubble. And uh, it, uh, it was really, I very clearly remember what they always emphasize that the, what you call pathways they were clear, clearly drawn. That means they, it, it, and I think it was re really important, like any young kid start, starting, you know, rowing or not only rowing any sport at uh, 13, 12, 14 years or earlier, uh, they can clearly see what they need to do, what they need to achieve to get into national team, team and then to be on the podium of Olympics and get medals, you know. And they call it pathways, as I remember, it was something like five uh, pathways. And uh, to my knowledge, results of selection regatta were compulsory. If you are in the top seven singles or top seven pairs, you must be in the national team and then you might uh, even uh, you uh, you are winner in a single. You might not be in a single. You could be in you know another board, double or quad, what they call priority board. But you anyway, you are in the team. As I understand now from this policy, 
you may not be in the team. Even you say uh, take some second, third, fifth place in the single or in the pair. Some someone subjectively subjectively can decide. Okay, some uh, you are not so good yet. You are not fit and proper person to represent British rowing, and someone slower in the small boat is better, you know, person to represent <laughs> us internationally. That, that's my understanding of their policy because so, at the moment you can meet all of the old physical selection criteria. But then these kind of softer criteria, if you don't fulfill those, you may still not end up in a boat, even though you've met the physical standards. That's, yes. yes. And that's, that's, that's where point. you're pushing back against, that these, these softer criteria are open to interpretation. They're not hard and fast based on performance. They're based on things that are much more nebulous and much more ambiguous. Yes, it's much more ambiguous uh, because sport cannot be subjective. That's uh, the only, uh, probably the, the last thing, the only one thing in our life which must be objective. Any other areas, you know, if you take arts, music, you know, fashion, literature, even economy uh, is subjective because, you know, if it's uh, aggressive advertising, good marketing, uh, you can push your not so good product uh, with less value for money and uh, <clears throat> uh, overtake, you know, <clears throat> better competitors. And politics is, I think it's also subjective because people vote more or less, you know, on the sports. Even, you know, figure skating, they had a significant problem with judgments because, you know, in the, it's artistic sport and they faced an exclusion from Olympic Games. But they changed the rules a few years ago. Now they have old records, scores, you know, in figure skating. Sport must be objective by default. Otherwise, it's not a sport, it's something else. Um, I'm not sure what medium you, you put out the statement, um, but you were really quite scathing about these subjective factors that seem to creep into the British Rank Selection Policy which is, it's not, oh no, it's the selection decisions, um, I think, that you might be referring to when you're talking about factors relevant to team balance and harmony, factors relevant to the athlete's combination within a crew, uh, including but not limited to compatibility, personal attributes and attitudes. My understanding is this is false interpretation of team playing approach, you know, because these days team playing is very popular term, you know, everyone wants to be team player. If you are not team player, you are, you know, you are not so good person, maybe. But, you know, from my point, real team is when the people get selected based on their you know, merits. And then they found the way uh, how to collaborate in the team. Every member of the team had their own role, and they uh, <clears throat> they hold it strongly. You know, not 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 weak team player, and uh, weak team players cannot make the good team. You know, it's obvious. Yeah, and I think most of the people understand it wrongly. Okay, you cannot raise your voice against something because otherwise you are not team player. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There are the rules of the, uh, in the in the team as well, and I think that uh, in terms of selection, athletes must be selected, and then the secondary task of the coach 
to make good team from them. Because anyway, they like a national team, they come in from different clubs, from different areas, they have different, you know, background and uh, you cannot expect compatibility straight away. You know, if you mix four singles in the quarter or eight guys in the eight <laughs> in the national team, they, they you cannot expect their friends, you know, and uh, make good team. That's the job of the coach to make good team. We talked with Andrew Triggs Hodge uh, just before Christmas, and he talked about sometimes you can put everything on a spreadsheet, but a great coach, and he was talking very specifically about Jurgen at this point, had an understanding of the intangibles, but he knew what could be built into a great crew. Is that what you're talking about? That, that you pick on performance and then the secondary job of the coach is to go, well, these people will work well together. They've got the physical criteria, but they, they, they'll work well together and I can build them. Yes, yes. Uh, we just uh, uh, heard Jürgen interview with um, um, Crossy, you know, with Martin Cross uh, a yeah. f- few days ago. I-, I hope you've seen it. And he said very clearly, I always, you know, uh, rely on um, performance in singles and pairs and allow them to choose the winners in the singles and pairs, what they want to do. Are they, do they want to race in the small boards or go? Uh, they're happy to go in big boards? And I spent, you know, five, more than five years with Jorgen. And I think it was absolutely clear selection criterion, you know, selection regatta, top seven plus one uh, spare single or pair. And that, that's it. That's national team. And then you may put the best uh, priority board, let's say, four best uh, pairs, or you, you can judge them on ERC score, or uh, you can do seat racing, whatever. And if someone unsuccessful with seat racing, and they they can uh, still they still can compete at internationally, but maybe in in a less priority board, they had less chances for medals, but still have chances they are still members of you know national team and have the chances yeah so there's an element of team building because you have to create the crew and as we know crews don't you don't just jump in a boat and it's there straight away but the team building is based upon objective criteria and what you're concerned about is we appear to be moving towards somebody's subjective judgment of what a team or a top boat looks like yes uh, I just repeat again, there is two stages of this process. First, selection and then team building. And you have to complete the first one and you have to have clear criteria for the first, for selection. And then uh, you have to have some, you know, methods or system to, to make a team from selected athletes. It seems like you're very concerned that almost this is going the other way around. Yes, yes. The, the people are, are focusing on team building before athlete selection. I don't know, really understand what those people from British Rowing, they are focusing on. And it also bad thing, they are anonymous, you know. It's another very bad point from my, my view because uh, nobody responsible for that selection criteria. So, for example, in, in a few years uh, performance uh, uh, would degrade uh, going down and um, uh, who is responsible 
cannot blame anyone. <laughs> this is this is something that I was really really concerned with, and you know, I'll, I'll kind of impose a view that I almost had that so very much there was kind of a pyramid of responsibility uh, with Jurgen right at the top up until the point that he left. Now it seems that that has been changed completely. If, if, if I look at the structure, uh, you don't have a head coach of British rowing. You have a group of head coaches. It almost seems as though this one interpretation of changing that system from where you had a, a head coach who essentially made decisions and took responsibility for those decisions it's it's a way of any one person being able to avoid or to diffuse responsibility for anything that goes wrong yeah uh, uh, to my knowledge this is called leadership you know and we definitely see the lack of leadership you know in british rowing there okay. is no, no clear leader and there is no person who say okay this is the way to go and i'm responsible if you, uh, <laughs> for this decision. <laughs> I do not see this sort of person, you know. They, they, basically, they sort of, they probably were selected um, as a good managers. And I know the performance director from other sports, from triathlon or... Even Brendan Purcell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they probably sell, uh, got the job based on his management skills. But in fact, there is a... Um, manager but also it must be a leader you know like in politics there is um, uh, like performance and there's a person uh, leader who who makes you know the, um, the 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 pathway of development and um, i do not see that person because performance director now uh, i have to pay respect again to david tenner you know he was that that person even um, our uh, actually he fired me from <laughs> sport institute i'm still have very uh, great respect to him because he was real uh, you know moving power of uh, british rowing and uh, he has uh, the, his own ideas he could make mistake yeah but everyone make mistake anyway but he was a leader and I, now i do not see the leaders you know and also the, these athletes you know who is a real star now in uh, in British rowing? You know, like uh, like we had before, before, like Andy Hodge or Vincent Redgrave, Catherine Granger. Uh, who is uh, a similar level now? I think they mainly stars, good stars on social media, on Instagram, on uh, <laughs> on, twi on Twitter, <laughs> but but not not really on. Uh... You, what you're saying is. One of the things that maybe made British rowing a success is you had people like David Tanner or Jürgen who were prepared to take it on, take responsibility for going in a particular direction. But now we don't have that. From your perspective, why have they gone in this direction? Is this is this an attempt not to take responsibility for what happens next? Is it is it a carefully controlled experiment to see what happens next, to see if a different model can work? Just more from my philosophical understanding, you know, any yeah. anything in this life has, you know, uh, uh, up and down. You know, it's it's uh, it's cyclic. Any process and any you know entity, they they're cyclic. We have days, day, and night, uh, winter and summer, uh, 
high tide, low tide, and I think this is just um, another phase of the cycle. Maybe I hope it'll finish one day and then it goes up with good leadership again. Yeah, but uh, I can only have phil philosophical view on that. I think it's just um, uh, like uh, bottom of the cycle, uh, mm -hmm. bottom phase of the cycle of British rowing, and then it should be changed for better and uh, go up again. I think it happens everywhere, any country, if you look, um, starting in Australia, they established their sporting system in 19, after 1976, complete failure, no, no medals, no Olympic medals at all. And I think similar in British row in 1996, I think it was only one medal of Steve Redgrave, yes. And then uh, they they made that lottery funded um, government system, and uh, and and it, it helps to improve significantly uh, the sporting system. But you know there is some uh, probably internal contradictions in the system. You know bureaucratic bureaucracy, all the things. I think they they play quite negative role in the development. I think that's what happened. I mean that that kind of again it almost seems like the new selection criteria. I, I would say that I think a huge number of people in the community that is British rowing haven't read the selection criteria. They, they might have read the, um, so, so, so we have a, a new sort of like, there was a press release, um, but then you actually have to click through on the press release to get to the actual kind of the, the list, it's like, 10 pages long of how these things are going to be done. From what you're saying about this concern that if you speak out, your athlete or even yourself, you cannot be selected, that, that almost seems worse with these selection criteria. Because, you know, you, you can say, it's like, oh, yeah, th this person is not, this is not going to contribute to team balance and harmony because they're speaking out against the idea. They may not say, of course, they, they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say like that, you know, you are speaking, uh, well, they say it's something else, you know, there's something, your own style or, you know, your some, and uh, if you know how that seat racing is performed, you know, that's completely, uh, you can't check basically what they take on stopwatch and uh, <laughs> it's not official regatta and uh, uh, just from my experience, uh, I haven't heard anyone who is happy with, you know, uh, like British showing at junior level, you know, everyone is saying, oh, and uh, to be honest, um, the, the way they, they work is completely nonsense to me. Like uh, they, they even don't ask uh, rowers and coaches what they want need to do. They, they just send a circular letter and saying, okay, we are sending on a junior world championship uh, double and and quote. That's it, full stop. And my son was like 15 seconds faster in a single, and I, we wanted him because it was his second year in uh, in in juniors, and he already had silver medal in a quote. We we wanted him to compete in a, in a single. They they didn't discuss it, and I. <laughs> Uh, I've spoken with David Purcell and said, well, look, what's going on? They, uh, <laughs> to, to me, it's complete nonsense, you know, but nothing happened. He got his second silver in the quad 
and I think it was step, sort of step back for him uh, for second year in juniors. But anyway, uh, uh, it's still puzzle to me. Uh, if you want, if you have more questions, I'm still thinking what's going on and uh, how it can be changed and uh, looking at all that, what's going on now with that COVID and uh, restriction of freedom. I'm, uh, you know, I, many, many times I, ha I have sort of deja vu, like now, where am I? I'm, I'm in Soviet Union or I'm, <laughs> am I in free democratic country, you know? Uh, and uh, I have it many times, like uh, many associations with um, the, uh, my, uh, my time in that socialist country. <laughs> So the lack of accountability and transparency is—is is that what you're reading, Lewin? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my, my question for you, Valerie, would be: how, how, what should they do differently? What, what, what would be the thing that you would say, right? How, how are we going to change this? I think uh, we just need go to back to basics, you know, and look back into. Uh, what the people write in the uh, uh, vision and mission of the, any organization, you know, on the website. I, I told you I have some experience working in that um, system and I know it must be vision and mission and then you have purposes and targets. So I think the mission is developing uh, sport of rowing for British rowing, right? So let's start from that. How are you going to develop? You, uh, I, uh, you are uh, got a job on um, uh, basically on taxpayers' money on British Owen. Anyway, the lottery funded, but uh, we know that it's only 10% lottery money, it's 90% from taxpayers' pockets. There, in my time, this time it could be different. I don't know, maybe less, maybe more. But so, what, what how can you help us for that money? You are service provider, we are your customers, we are. Uh, grassroots sport uh, people in uh, in in this country. We self-sufficient. We pay membership fee for the clubs. We buy boats, oars. We we pay for regattas, for camps, ev for everything, for trailers. We are not asking money from you. How you can help us for <laughs> from for money from our pockets as well? Is this uh, your like? Uh, when we're talking about objective, subjective decision, you know, uh, who are you to make that decision and, you know, and to judge us and to say, okay, this is fit person and proper person, this is not. Your job is, uh, you know, establish some rule of the games, fair, objective, transparent, clear, encouraging, motivating, because it's motivation that's the most important. So now, like young people starting rowing, they look at that selection criteria, 19 points, and say, no, 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 no. I'm not playing this game. It's something, <laughs> something <laughs> really strange to me. I would better uh, go to football or rugby. You know, it's clear. You know, you are uh, you are strong, fit, and push hard, and you know you are in a team. But not not with this selection criteria. The the. The new selection criteria appear to emphasize kind of interpersonality, the ability to fit within a team environment, those kind of ideas. Even as club rowers, training for rowing is, is hard. Once you get to the elite level, it's shattering stuff. 
we've had a lot of issues around athlete welfare in British sports across all sports. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that this kind of, that this softer approach is an attempt to mitigate athlete welfare issues? Like people coming forward and saying, this is too hard. I had to have surgery because of X and Y. This is, this is too brutal. You know, even for a gold medal, it's too brutal. Well, of course it's hard. Yeah, but um, I would always remind athletes, you know, it's hard for you guys. It's not hard for anyone. It, it, this is difficulties. This is hardness is to make you care, you make you stronger. If you cannot um, so, uh, do it, okay, there is many other areas in your, your life, you know, if you go to, you know, uh, arts, business or whatever, just social socializing, you still have good life, you know. Uh, nobody pu should push you to do that. But it's, uh, it's uh, I would say, of course, it's different at different level. You, uh, you, you are right. It, it's um, at low level. It's basically hard for you, you know. When at club level, when you start as a junior, the sport is good for to build your characters and uh, you know the. Uh, fighting uh, at that competition and um, strength of your character. I think it's really important. At elite level, it could be damaging. Of course, we know it very well. The, the training loss is so high, but um, it's I think it's still manageable, you know, and you, you're going up and up and up. And if you're really talented, of course, you may have injuries, you may have uh, overtraining, and it's another part. And I think this is where coaching skills are really important, you know, to, to see because um, it's another area. Very often coaches push hard athletes to train more and more simply because they have knowledge. They don't really know uh, how much is enough, you know. They have no information, no feedback about the uh, reaction, response of the athlete body. Are they overtrained or can they train more? And it's very simple. If coach don't understand uh, physiology, training, planning, biomechanics, uh, <laughs> and wants to be successful, very often they push hard athletes to... Uh, to to do more uh, hours, more miles, you know, lift more weights and um, uh, all that silly things. And that's what happens. I think that's really important to have uh, good, knowledgeable coaches who really uh, can make the best from the athletes, you know, get the best uh, performance at, at minimal or optimal uh, amount of training. That's what's important. So you, you'd almost say that every coach needs to be tailoring the athlete's training program to the development of that athlete, right? Where, where, where's, the, where's the sweet spot? How, how do we find that sweet spot where you're developing the fastest at the lowest risk of overtraining or injury? This is basically the professionalism and talent of the coach, you know, the experience and knowledge and everything, you know. My understanding of good coach, like, that's a person who, for example, in the morning, he line up the athletes before the session and look into their eyes and say, okay, you, are, you and you and you, you are good, you are going in the, in the best board, but you and you, you have a rest today. 
you look uh, look not so good <laughs> yeah or you do something easy training and uh, that that's to my understanding that's that's a good coach other way around other coach say this every morning let's train hard we are the team you know let's go let's beat them you know then <laughs> and uh, I, I saw it very well you know my my guys uh, two older sons were in Windsor boys I came in the morning to the morning session. They had two sessions per day, and it's winter, early morning, darkness. Uh, half of the boys uh, sniffing and uh, they have running nose, and they, it's obviously they ill. Coach, pay no attention to that, and it's very damaging. You know, they, it, it could be very damaging for health, even young growers, and it could be you know chronic, chronic illness and all that. Um, problems created from that you are based with you're based in british rowing so but not not the the company but you, you are you are a man who lives his life within rowing in britain um but you still you're from russia you have an outside perspective you've uh, presumably you've competed against british boats yes um we kind of have this belief that kind of like flourishes every four years that we are the greatest rowing nation in the world from a perspective from an objective perspective are we really as good as we like to believe uh i can confirm you are the greatest rowing nation and that's why i'm here because <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much we weren't looking for the compliment we were genuinely <laughs> curious but thank you yeah that's the reason why like if you ask any anyone in the street in russia what's rowing he would say ah this is a paddling for face forward because people just even don't know what's rowing means you know because in rowing uh canoeing also called rowing but in in canoe you know yeah and uh, here uh, you have uh, everyone knows what what rowing is um, uh, and they actually rowing part of the british life you know part of education system and part of the culture and i think that's really great that success has been based on the system we had before where you had strong people driving forward in a particular vision there were objective selection criteria and now we're changing that so if we are so successful and we are known throughout the world for being one of the you know if not the greatest rowing nation why are we changing a system that worked for a system that that we don't know if it'll work or not is it simply because we've lost we've lost jürgen and he's retired again i can answer only from philosophical point of view uh, to me it's like endless endless process of a competition of people with hard skills and soft skills hard uh, people with hard skills with uh, good professionalism you know all this uh, knowledge and simply simply grip you know simply stamina and um, what you call uh, they could workers but they may not be comfortable you know to work with yeah and people with soft skills they also want recognition they also want you know to be somewhere on the top in the position in the country how they can compete and then they try to find a way this is exactly exactly going back to selection criteria you know they try to make you know somehow the uh, the way to the to the top 
And that's what happens in organization, in politics, in uh, sport, everywhere. People uh, with, who are less competitive, they try to find a way. And uh, that makes the organization and system less competitive and, uh, and worse. I think that's my philosophical point of view. Uh, but <laughs> exactly why, I don't really know, because I was not there. And uh, I only can see from, you know, from, from general perspective, from... We've had a chat with Martin Cross, with, with Crossy as well, and, and he was quite candid about, and he was quite candid about the kind of struggles for someone like Steve Redgrave, who was very hard-nosed and pragmatic about what he wanted to do in sport, coming up against the then British rowing establishment. He was so successful, not just because of, of his talent and his application, but because he was prepared to rock the boat and not tow the party line and for you know and go right, I'm I'm going in that direction, and now we're moving away from that kind of strong driving. This is where we're going to a well, you know, a little bit more touchy feely about things. We maybe haven't recognised our own history there. It could be cyclic um, uh, process, but it could be you know some revolutionary. Things happens. I'm not sure. And looking at other things, you know, it's sort of definitely revolution happens now in the West, and uh, many signs of that. We can see it. Even destruction of the monuments. You know, that's uh, exactly what happened after Russian Revolution. <laughs> they, they destructed the monuments, one monuments, and tried to build another one. And we're toppling our monuments. We're 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 we're, yeah. pulling, <laughs> we're pulling our achievements over into the into the street. Oh, well. that, that 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 should worry Steve Redgrave. Um, yeah. If we're talking about monuments, um, Valerie, do you think that you know with this change? Is it possible that the success that we've had so far can continue? Or, or do you think it's going to have a real impact? Uh, it's quite possible the average level would be good, uh, some not so bad, uh, because, you know, the British rowing, it's really great sport and it, it has a lot of potential, many people, young people, and still, still uh, uh, very wide basis, you know. But I'm not sure if you'll have uh, so brilliant stars as Steve Redgrave and uh, Pinsent and Cracknell and Kath Granger. I'm not sure because this this system definitely is not helping developing this uh, sort of stars, and they they may be rejected and kicked out in early stages or pushed down later. I'm not sure. So so someone as stubborn or headstrong or determined as a Redgrave or a Cracknell or a Kath Granger might be deemed by the people doing the selection as being too headstrong and too stubborn and not enough of a team player. And therefore they won't develop into these monuments that we then build around and upon. Uh, yeah, it's quite possible. Yeah. And also uh, great performances combination of um, talent of the athletes and great coaching, you know, as well and uh, looking at the coaches now i'm not sure if they are so i, I, I wouldn't say anything but i do not definitely do not see people like uh, jorgen or uh, paul thompson or uh, we had many good co even sparkling was uh, not like he's uh, very specific but um, uh, nobody can say that he is a, was a 
there's no star, really stars. Who is the star now again? Who is the coaching star or, <laughs> or uh, people who who can be, you know, uh, name is familiar and you know, everyone recognizes it. I'm not sure now. I think it's more or less even sort of gray mess of um, people. They could be good team player, very comfortable, but uh, work with, but, uh, I don't know. Valerie, just just a slightly change tack. Um, something we sort of probably, possibly skipped over at, at the start. For for people who aren't as familiar, you know, I, I've been following your work for a very long time because possibly I have belief above my station in what I could achieve in rowing. But you you run a company called BioRow. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What does it do? Who do you work with? How? how a, a club athlete could benefit from what you've done? Yeah, thanks for a very good question. Basically, um, I'm a sports scientist and, uh, and my job is research and development in sport of rowing. And that's what I do basically the whole my life after I, I finished uh, rowing in 1986. I became PhD student and then defended PhD in 1991. Since that time, I'm. That's my main main focus of my life, is uh, rowing research and development. It, uh, I have, I believe, I have some skills to do it. I, I'm not too bad, say, in some physics and mathematics and programming and uh, basic level. But uh, anyway, I can do something in uh, some engineering things. And uh, uh, this is what I do uh, anyway, doesn't matter where I am, in Russia or in Australia, in Great Britain, that, that, that's my, um, is I part of Sport Institute or now I work on my own, that's, that's basically fo focus of my life. And um, uh, in terms of uh, rovers and coaches, uh, my main job is basically to help them to uh, uh, improve biomechanics of rowing, improve technique efficiency, and achieve better results. And this is uh, part of what I call con consultancy. Yeah, I work with many teams. Uh, here in Great Britain, I work with uh, many uh, schools, colleges like St. Paul, uh, Westminster, and... Um, Eaton, uh, and basically uh, two, three times a year we, we do biomechanical measurements. That means uh, we set the time session, uh, uh, usually at Dorney Lake. I put my uh, sensors equipment on the board. They do a few rounds, changing the crew or whatever they want to do. We have some standard test protocol. Then I process the data, print reports and explain them and illustrated this video uh, for every rovers, uh, what's good for him or her, and what can be improved, you know, basically, and all and for the whole team as well. Synchronization is really important, and I can measure it really accurately. This is my main part. That's how I help. Also, I work with many national teams from uh, from China to America. In America, I also work with clubs, you know, Cambridge Board Club and some other clubs I'm visiting, not, not this time, of course, we said COVID, it's all not so easy <laughs> now. Yeah, but uh, my 
uh, quite long time clients are Denmark, Rowing Team, Norway. Um, uh, and also I uh, uh, produce um, equipment, measurement equipment for sale. So that sensors and telemetry system, uh, many countries has bought it. Uh, Central and uh, Eastern Europe, usually it's like Hungary, Austria, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, they had my system, Serbia, and uh, in Germany as well, and a um, few guys in America, in Canada. And uh, this is another part because uh, to, make, to, to make measurements, I, I have to produce equipment myself because it's very specific. I can't buy it anywhere, not like these other sports sciences like physiologists, they can buy a heart rate meter or lactate meter in the shop. I can't buy specific sensors in, 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 in the shop what, exactly what I need. So I, and it's quite a big area uh, because, you know, uh, it's continuous improvement of the equipment. And uh, the third area, basically research in the sport I work with a few uh, manufacturers of oars and boards. I, spent, I had very good relationship with Vintech and oar sport here in UK. With who you know, Vintech is, I think it's quite good. They produce very good boards. And my recent project was uh, with Concept Two, with uh, measurements of the blade efficiency, different types of the blade, and <clears throat> a few years. Before I worked with them in terms of ergometers, uh, when they developed that new Dyna and um, new types of ergometers and these ores. So now we uh, started again these ores with them. So it's also quite interesting area. So basically that's three areas, uh, consultancy, uh, development of measurement equipment and electronics. I'm not producing electronics myself. I have a few contractors, guys who helped me to, to make that data loggers and uh, other electronics. And, but with sensors, I usually just um, design them and then just send it to workshop to, to make. And the third area is research in, in this uh, roving equipment manufacturers. There's there's one thing that I remember, and sort of, I I think that like we've actually covered quite a lot of controversial territory in in this discussion so far. But you did a an analysis of the hydrodynamics of Wintex, Mpackers, and Felipe sing, single skulls. Mm -hmm. And what what was the result of that? Uh, in a few words, Impacari uh, Vintech was um, very close on the top. <clears throat> Filippi was a little bit uh, below. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's quite controversial and people complain, uh, send me complaints, like I got complaints from Filippi and even from Impacar. Even their boards uh, look good. They sent me complaints saying, oh, that was wrong type of the board. We have better board. Um, I said, sorry, guys, send me your good board and I will test it uh, for quite reasonable, you know, payment from your side. So I test the boards which, which people gave me to test. That, that, that's all, you know. If Vintech provided new board and Impact Awards, 
quite new, but Filippi was older type and maybe the, the surface one was not so good it was but uh, <laughs> and I never say all boards you know all uh, like all Filippi is bad I never say that I said we tested this board I um, published the shield of the board you know year of manufacturing and uh, type of the board it said look guys we tested these boards and we uh, got these results and to me, the most important is uh, my methods and um, accuracy of my methods. And that measurements uh, probably refer to 2015. We did it in St. Petersburg in an indoor tank. Yeah, yeah, that, that was the one I remember. Yeah. And it was really valuable for me because it was my measurements, biomechanical measurements with my sensors, they confirmed with completely independent measurements from that guys with towing, you know, they, they had that machines and basically I've done my parts, left the bond and go, uh, went back to UK. And they, they did the measurements on their own with that board, just sent me results. I compared the data and found uh, 0.99 correlation with uh, my data and their data. So for me, it was very good confirmation that I'm measuring quite, quite right, quite accurately. So that's that's my main interest. <laughs> you know, I, I remember reading that, um, and I, I think at the time I was, you know, I was really interested in in single sculling. I, I was I was racing in singles, and slightly my jaw dropped because y you had you had almost confirmed in two different ways that Wintex were as good if not better at cutting through the water than what I considered you know what had the reputation to be the best boats in the world uh M Packers and Felipe he's certainly a single skulls yeah, Vintic are really good boards, you know, they, they're designed by Klaus Filter, the very famous uh, naval architect, and uh, I used to row his boards uh, produced in G East Germany, in GGR, you know, and even with low quality materials, they were quite fast. That means yeah. the shape was, uh, uh, it was no carbon fiber that time, uh, it was basically just plastic and wooden structure and uh, 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 soft deck and um, yeah the, and now he has his own vision a lot of experience uh, they more stable i think they are the boards and uh, but you know it's um, the design may vary between board types so uh, these days, it's common knowledge that um, in Parker singles are better than others, but Filippi doubles are better than you know any uh, other boards. So it's it may vary from one type of the board to another. And um, uh, I would be really interested to do it more or less objectively. For example, if board builders would uh, send me their best boards and we have good conditions and uh, we can do objective measurements and but i'm not sure if they are really interested you know to do it and uh, uh, it's still you know uh, sort of uh, sub quite subjective i would say <laughs> again <laughs> subjective <laughs> selection of the board but still uh, people try to 
very often they ask me, I'm coming to do the measurements. They, they have uh, two types or more types of the board. I did it with Mirka Napkova, you know, Olympic champions in the single in uh, 2009. I did it with many other teams. Uh, they tried to find the, the best boards and oars on their own, not, uh, not in general scale. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask a, a non-technical question as, as probably the non-scientist in the room, um, being a humanities PhD rather than mm -hmm. a science PhD? You, you, you're talking about boats that seem quite close together, but there are obvious differences. Felipe doubles are better than in, in, in their class. Empaca singles are better. Mm. Is it almost a case like a musician with a with a with a violin? Some some players will go better in with a Stradivarius. Some players will be better with a Guarneri. Is there an element of fitting the athlete to the boat? So an empaca might not be right for everybody because of a particular style or feel that an athlete has. Yes, of course, you're absolutely right. Yes, because uh, the rowing speed is not only the quality of the board, which in fact is very similar. You know, if we uh, measure them, the difference is like uh, 0.01, something like percent, very small difference. They're all good, basically, all more or less good. But also ability of the rowers to produce power. And it depends on how comfortable they feel in that board, how stable it is, you know, how uh, relaxed they move, uh, maintain the, maintaining the rhythm of rowing. And I think and also all that vertical oscillation of the board and uh, movement of the board are really important. And uh, for example, for heavy athletes moving long distance on the slides, the board goes like that, you know, uh, for aft movement very, very very significant so that means uh, the whole shape must be sort of log type you know for light 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 weights and especially rowing some short slides using you know longer arms uh, they have less movement of the mass that the movement of the board is less the shape could be sort of banana shape because it has a smaller wetted area. That means less friction. Yeah, so it's, it's, it must be sort of balance between board and, and rowers, of course. Do coaches actually experiment then? Do, would they say, right, let's try, let's try you in an Ailings, let's try you in an Empacker, let's try you in a, in a Felipe, let's, let's record the times, but let's talk about how you feel in these boats. I, I seem to remember the Sydney Four just before the Olympics, the Redgrave Sydney Four ended up getting a new boat shipped out because the 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 old one wasn't wasn't feeling right. There was something wrong with the with with the bow, um, and they ended up getting a new a new shell shipped out. So, do coaches experiment with shells and athletes? Of course, they try. Uh, uh, if they have, you know, firstly they need to have some money, some you know, to buy. <laughs> To get that boards, <laughs> so if if they have a choice, of course they try to experiment and to find the best. Uh, at top level, it it happens quite often because uh, you know they have money and they may have a choice. And also the uh, with with uh, top athletes, uh, rowers, and crews, uh, board builders offer it for free now. You, if you know that marketing strategy of Empire and Filippi, they give boards for free to the best rowers for a year or two years and then 
take it back and sell as a even uh, more expensive price. Yeah, so it, uh, top athletes, of course, they usually have a choice and they uh, try to find the best board and oars for them, the most comfortable, the fastest, you know, and uh, most reliable. Just to give you uh, an opportunity to um, let people know where they can find uh, your work with BioRow, um, because you're very generous about publishing the results of what you do. Where could a, um, a club rower or an, an amateur coach, if they wanted to look at the work you've done, where could they find that, that work? Um, you see at the background my um, uh, Biro website, biro.com. Basically, if you start from, from that or send me email, valerie at biro.com, uh, and then we can start communication and uh, I can do my best to help anyone. <laughs> That's, okay. I, I see this as my duty, you know, to ruin and. Uh, I spend a lot of time, you know, simply answering questions by email and uh, uh, just giving advice to rowers and coaches. And but of course, if I have to, uh, you know, do, do testing and you know, spend my time with uh, my equipment, uh, I need some, you know, reimbursement. I think think that's a noticeable thing about you that um, very much in what is. A sport dominated by government funding. You you seem to be making a living in the private sector. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which is uh, which I don't think a huge number of people can say that they do that. And um, yeah, maybe it's my nature. Not everyone like that, but uh, I really like my position. Even uh, working for government for uh, many years. Very often, I, I felt quite, you know, uncomfortably uh, because I always try to judge myself. Okay, I, I get my salary, that money. What, what, what I providing for my money? You know, when you work for government, uh, very often it's completely unclear what basically you're getting money for. <laughs> and I, I feel felt really uncomfortable when when. Uh, like uh, driving in the morning to, to my office and looking at the van of uh, builders or, you know, road workers who who doing hard work for much lower salary than my salary. I always thought, okay, what I'm getting my money for? Yeah. <laughs> I think what you've argued for throughout is if we have this system that is based upon lottery funding and taxpayer funding, there has to be accountability and transparency and there has to be measurable deliverables. And your concern, if I'm reading you right, Valerie, is that um, with this new selection criteria, we don't have the accountability, the transparency or the measurable deliverables that we used to have perhaps under Jürgen uh, um, when we, when we had a different system that was driven by kind of a focal point moving forward in a direction. Yeah, I think so. You absolutely um, phrased it very well, you know. Yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, exactly what you said, yes. I, I have my moments. Lewin does all the heavy lifting, but occasionally <laughs> I, I come out with a sentence that works. Yeah. He, he, he does the articulacy uh, between the two of us very much. Um, 
Valerie, from my point of view, I, I don't have anything else to ask. Uh, it's been a fascinating com conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the Broken Horse podcast. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks a lot for your interest and uh, hopefully we'll tr change the things to better. <laughs> and that was Dr. Valerie Kleznev joining us a little while ago to talk about changes to GB selection policy and what impact that might have on the way that the squad looks going forward, how crews are selected, and it raised questions of transparency and accountability and what actually drives successful programs. He also talked about what makes a good coach, that it isn't as simple as just picking the four fastest members of the squad and making a winning coxless four out of it. One of the points he made was that what is often forgotten about Jürgen was his ability to blend people together into winning crews. Yes, he had access to superstar athletes and to dominant athletes like Redgrave and Pinsent and Andy Hodge and Pete Reed, but you have to be able to see past the physical characteristics and the ERG scores and perhaps put people in a crew together where there are disparate personalities and there are different views on the world and there may be clashes because rowing, as we know, is filled with strong-willed and stubborn people. And part of the coach's job is to blend that together to make it work. And having that empathy and that compassion and that feel for your athletes is as much an essential skill as your ability to analyze data sets and prognostics and force curves. And then just talking very openly about ideas that we've thrown around on this podcast and discussed with people like Jez Moore and Jennifer Say and Tristan McLaughlin, which is the unavoidable reality that the sporting success models that we have in this country are largely taxpayer funded. If you are old, as I am, you will remember a time before lottery funding where Great Britain didn't win a huge amount. And I'm sure that we've all enjoyed the gold rush that we've had since. But it's come at a cost, not just a financial cost. You only have to look at British cycling, which has been a slow motion car crash for most of the last decade. Um, the way that British gymnastics has handled athlete welfare claims to realize that not all is rosy in our garden. British rowing has been remarkably lucky in that regard. It hasn't had any major scandals attached to it. It hasn't had any major issues attached to it in the way that a lot of the other Olympic sports have and from the outside looking in it appears that those issues have been allowed to take root and grow into a fully fledged garden of crap simply because of a lack of clear oversight, good governance and transparency and accountability. I think Dr. Kleznev makes the very important point that transparency and accountability are key to balanced high performance programs there has to be a point at which the book stops and somebody takes responsibility. And I think that his point is that it's not clear in the present setup where that book would stop, and also that it's not necessarily clear in the present setup what the criteria are to actually make it into a boat. That perhaps some of the new selection points are open to interpretation. If one man's meat is another man's poison, one person's idea of what constitutes a good team player or a good team member might be radically different.
from another person's. Would, for example, Sir Steve's obduracy in the 80s about his own path and his conflicts with the British rowing establishment be interpreted today as, well, he's not a team player, he's not a team member. They're interesting points to consider. Looking at the recent European Championships, um, it looks like the squad is in, is in good health and whatever is being done at the moment seems to be working. To come back to someone like Jez's point, we've maxed out Jürgen's approach. Perhaps this is part of a new approach to touch on other levers that we can pull besides the effort lever to keep Britain at the top of the rowing tree. As Valerie points out though, everything in life and history is cyclic. Empires rise and fall. Nothing lasts forever. And perhaps we have had a golden age of British rowing that we might not see for a while yet. We might be at the tail end of it. Um, we might be starting another cycle of dominance. It's difficult to tell, but that's what makes our sport so wonderful to watch, as well as the joy of being out on the water and moving a boat. And on that happy note, if there are any manufacturers or people who deal with Vespolis and Wintex and M-Packers and Philippis, well, we can't possibly comment upon Dr. Kleshnev's scientific evaluation of your products until we get to try them for ourselves. So if anyone out there would like to send us each a heavyweight single for us to test, uh, Lewin down south where he's currently drowning in a sea of work, and myself up here on the choppy waters of the Tyne where Durham University Boat Club's coach seems determined to kill me in his launch. Um, if I'd wanted to go surfing then I would have joined a surf club instead. Please send us a boat and we will report back on feel. I think that I may well be a Guaneri type of sculler, big, bold and romantic, and Lewin might be a more of a Stradivarius type, which is kind of very, very intense, very focused and very precise. But we won't know. Send us a boat and we'll report back. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Bowside holding, stroke sides heads under until the bubbles stop coming up. Over and out for now.